Welcome to Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson. This podcast is a work in progress about every working person's work in progress, namely our quest to be fully human in a working world that all too often makes us feel like machines in which we often don't even have time to think and that in the words of Studs Terkel, too much feels like a Monday through Friday sort of dying. I'm having a series of conversations 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks in which I'm exploring the general question, what can we still learn about living and working meaningfully from the lives lost on 9-11-2001? More specifically, can individuals find meaningful work in the pursuit of monetary wealth on Wall Street? And can an investment bank pursue a moral purpose beyond maximization of profit? My upcoming conversation with Fred Price Managing Director of Financial Services for Piper Sandler & Company, seeks to find answers to these questions in the experience of a firm that suffered the unimaginable loss of 66 people on 9-11, and yet carried on with business in the aftermath of the attacks. Welcome to this work in progress, Fred. Thank you. Fred, those of us on the outside of the investment banking industry don't really understand the industry very well. I'm wondering if you can tell us about Sandler O'Neill Partners in 2001. And then Piper Sandler, which your firm is now a part of in 2021. In layperson's terms, what's your business? What's your market position? And maybe most importantly, what gets you up in the morning to do it? Well, I'll start with the, 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 the business itself. We started the firm in August of 1988. We met each other, all the founders, the six of us met each other at Bear Stearns & Company, actually. And in August 88, my partner, Herman Sandler, who was killed on 9-11, suggested that we should start our own firm. We thought he was crazy, but we went along with it. And it's been a, it, 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 it was the best thing I ever did, frankly, was to follow his advice. We, our firm in its initial form was focused really on mid-size banks and thrifts, financial institutions that were, we thought were being underserved by the larger firms in Wall Street and the various needs, whether it was balance sheet management needs, investment banking needs, capital market needs, and so forth. That's how we started. As we grew going up to 2001, we added many other elements of the financial services industry to that focus, such as insurance, the REIT space, the real estate space, and so forth. We also added significantly in our equity coverage of that space as an equity market maker and providing equity research to the institutional investor universe uh, within all of those sectors that we covered. And so that's what we, we looked like the morning of September 11th of 2001. We were a fairly diversified firm in the financial services space. And we had a focus in fixed income, we had a focus in investment banking, we had a focus in capital markets, and we had a focus in equity research, sales, and trading. Those were our our principal businesses then. As you know, I think because you've, you've been around our business and here in New York, for the most part, a lot of those people that work in those disciplines go to work pretty early, frankly. Uh, 
people tend to show up at as early as 6 a.m. in many cases, and sometimes even earlier than that. And, you know, in many cases, the markets close at four and people are still around well after that with, uh, with work-related things. And so uh, for the most part, our firm is a very kind of early-to-work firm, where was, we always were when we started the firm. And that was the case, obviously, on 9-11 of 01, which is why we had so many people at their desks in New York when those planes hit the South Tower. Over the next, well, the next 18 years, I guess, until our merger with, with Piper, we had developed, again, all those disciplines, I said, and really had gone even deeper into the various sectors of the financial services space. And so the merger with Piper was really one where we brought a very strong and market leader presence in the financial services space. Piper has had built great similar focuses, but in other sectors, other business sectors. And our combination was really, we thought a combination of one plus one could equal three because we, we just didn't have a lot of overlap. And so it wasn't a merger of firms that required significant expense reduction. It really was a merger of firms that that was built upon strength on strength and growing those strengths. Thank you, Fred. I'm reflecting on a few things in the wake of what you've just said. And one of them is that I'm sitting here in Minneapolis today, and you're in New York. And I grew up um, in Minneapolis knowing about a firm called Piper Jaffrey, now part of Piper Sandler. And I grew up as an adult working and living in New York City and knew of Sandler O'Neill. So there's sort of a poignant connection there for me, as well as a recognition that one of the things that you said, that people came to work early at Sandler O'Neill, and the people who died that day generally were people who just showed up for a hard day's work. That's uh, a really important part of the tragedy, that the virtue of coming to work was just a misfortune on that particular day. No, that's 100% right. And that's not just with us. That was with Cantor, who was seriously impacted ourselves, KBW, Aon, Marsh McLennan, Euro Brokers, and so forth. And so I, I wanted to follow up on the question of what does get you excited to come to work early in the morning every day? Because one of the things that I've read about in learning about your firm is that 9-11 influenced the sense of purpose with which you work. So can you tell us about sort of the purpose of coming to work every day and how 9-11 influenced that sense of purpose? Yeah, uh, very much so. You know, pre-9-11, we were a growing firm. We were very successful in our space, a market leader, frankly, in our space. And I think what got us all up in the morning was that was that momentum that we had built, the position in the market we had built, and the just the frankly the excitement of, of, of being part of that. It was really kind of self self focused, right? It was really on what it is we were doing and the the achievements we were making and frankly the the great things we were helping our clients achieve. Because in our business, as you know, your background, 
uh, we don't have any success unless our clients have success. And so it's our it's our role to make sure we're finding ways for our clients to succeed, and that then translates to our success going forward. Post 9/11, the business itself didn't change in terms of the interesting aspects of the business. It's intellectually stimulating. It's very rewarding to immerse yourself into a client situation and try to put yourself in their shoes and try to give them the best advice possible on the courses of action they could take or, or various transactional things that they might be considering. But it really became bigger than that. And I, and I, I know it, it'll probably sound a little bit, uh, I don't know, trite is the wrong word, but we really began to work for something other than ourselves. It really became our mission to make those who we lost that day, who were killed that day, proud of that firm, make their families proud of that firm, and to find ways to take care of their families in the ways that we knew they would do for us if the roles were reversed. And so other people have called it a moral purpose. And I guess guess that's the right way to, to look at it because it really became bigger than us individually. It wasn't about what we were achieving solely and it wasn't about successes that we were having. It really became about what we were able to do because of that in terms of taking care of the people that we care deeply about who suffered that loss that day. It's really interesting for me as a moral philosopher to hear you talk from Wall Street about a moral purpose. It's also interesting to hear you talk about being in business for oneself versus others. And I think there's a stereotype among some that business is a self-interested activity. But as you said, your business, my former work in management consulting, we wouldn't have been in business if we didn't act on behalf of others, namely our clients. But I think what you've described here is that there's another stakeholder, namely victims' families and the victims' legacies that maybe you never imagined you would be working for after 9-11. Yeah, you know, you hear, listen, I, I, I hesitate to equate it to this because it's not close, but, you know, I have friends that have served in the military who lost comrades in the military. And they, they have a lot of that same, you know, that same kind of brotherhood connection to their friends that they lost. And, and it's not an equivalent connection because we did not serve in war. We were attacked, certainly, and, and our friends were killed. But, but, but you know, I, I do understand that better than I did pre-9-11. That resonates. And... You know, another uh, class of worker that was tragically affected by 9-11 was uh, that of first responders, firefighters especially. And I think you also hear that comradeship in that industry as well. Yeah, very much so. They, they, uh, you know, every anniversary, you really see that all the different groups, whether it was police, fire, port authority, even us, you know, our businesses trying to, to make sure that not only the families of those who were killed understand that, you know, the general, I guess, general society understand that we'll never forget the, uh, the, the loss that happened that day. So let's explore um, a little bit more this concept of working for others. Um, our society often talks about philanthropic work, which is part of the post-9-11 work that your firm has undertaken. 
We sometimes refer that to that as giving back to society. And I don't mean to sound cynical or judgmental in asking this question, but does that imply that non-philanthropic work is necessarily taking away? Or in what sense, in going about the ordinary course of business, can we be said to be giving to society? Well, I think we do. I guess it depends on what you do with it, right? The, I'll go back to the culture that, that was at Bear Stearns, where we all were before we started our own firm. And we tried to carry that same culture through. Bear Stearns was, Ace Greenberg, who was the leader at Bear Stearns, was very focused that if you were part of Bear Stearns, you were expected to find ways to give back all the time. Not just through monetary give back, but, but to give up your time as well. In, in supporting organizations and causes that you felt were, were, were things that were important to you. And we carried that same, kind of that same culture, if you will, into, into Santa. We were, it was always important that we were doing more than just, you know, our own private success. And I, I think post 9-11, obviously, you know, for us, that probably accentuated even more. But I think it's a little bit unfair to say that, you know, that people that are people that are successful in business, not just in Wall Street business, let's take it business in general, are takers and not givers. Because if it wasn't for those people in success, my daughter, for example, works in the nonprofit and the nonprofit world. And she understands that her success in the nonprofit organizations that she's worked for really depend on people that we're describing who give both time and, and uh, resources to support those organizations. So I, yeah, there's, there's a balance there, right? I think so. And this is reminding me of a, a book by... Um my friend and author Adam Grant called Give and Take, in which he concludes that givers actually ultimately are more successful than people who are purely takers. I, I would agree with that. And you've been in, in this world long enough in both areas to know, and you can kind of tell right away when you meet people who are givers and who are takers, can't you? You talked about the influence of your former firm on your current firm, and of course your current firm is now part of this merger with Piper, um, which has uh, made your firm much larger. It's also a uh, marriage of two cities, as I alluded to earlier, not just New York and Minneapolis, but um, those are prominent among your locations. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how the experience of Sandler O'Neill on 9-11-2001 has influenced the culture of the combined firm, Piper Sandler? Yeah, I think it's a good question, and it, it would take a, uh, an enormous amount of time probably to fully flesh out. But in our discussions with Piper, there were two things that were really kind of forefront in those discussions. One is what I alluded to earlier is that we really had complementary businesses, not competitive businesses. And so if there was a way to put the two firms together, we really felt it was a one plus one equals three, and it's not based upon 
you know, finding 40% expenses to cut. Number two, I think the leadership at Piper really saw a kind of a cultural mindset at Sandler that they wanted to be even more imported into their firm than they had already. And they really felt like that the senior people from Sandler joining with the senior people, Legacy Piper, would really bind together in a very unique way. And that culture will infiltrate the, the organization. And that, you know, I think that those two things right now, I, I would say that we are doing that as, as a firm. Fred, we've been talking primarily about the firms, but of course, firms are collections of people. And as we talked about, your firm lost a lot of people on 9-11. And although we can't talk about all of them at this moment, I'd like to explore a few of the individual stories of people you worked with and, and knew. One of the more well-known stories concerns Wells Crowther. He was a young trader in your firm who lost his life on 9-11, and he was remembered in a documentary film called Man in Red Bandana, which unraveled the mystery that some survivors recalled of a man who saved their lives working along firefighters, leading them to safety on 9-11. His father in the documentary recalls that Wells had wanted to be a firefighter all along and left behind a partially completed application to the Fire Department of New York. What, in your mind, does Wells' story teach us about the moral purpose of work? Yeah, it's, uh, Wells is a Wells is a, a, a special person to me. Um, Wells worked for me, and the one time I led at Sandler, I headed up the equity research group, and Wells uh, started his career in equity research. And uh, like many happened, or, or like many do that path from equity research led him to want to expand his, his universe from just research to sales and trading. So he had transitioned from equity research out to the equity trading floor. And that had occurred, frankly, just really not that long in front of what happened in 9-11. If you met Wells, you, you knew right away that he came from a very strong family and that, you know, we talk about givers that Wells came from givers and was a giver himself. And the way in which he found his greatest satisfaction in giving was as a volunteer fireman. And he was extremely proud of the, the work that not only he did, but, but volunteer firefighters, as you know, in the Northeast, uh, volunteer firefighters are very common in the Northeast and a lot of the small townships um, throughout the Northeast. And uh, you know, it, was a, it was a passion of his. But he also did love, he loved everything he did at Sandler. I mean, he told me one time that, that he felt like that he found the most perfect spot that he could, he could find in life and that and from a business perspective, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do in exactly the place he wanted to do it with the people he was most proud to be associated with, and yet he could still be connected with his volunteer fire work 
And he did, in fact, carry a red bandana in his pocket all the time. It was just a, a way for him to remember a little bit about the other side of him. So he would he would be at the equity desk, and that you could you could literally see the uh, the red bandana sometimes sticking out of his back pocket, and it was just it was just a reflection of who he was. I did not know he had not told me or anybody else that he worked with that he was considering potentially leaving the business that he was in and going to the FDNY. So that was a surprise, actually, when I heard that. I, it, it wasn't a total shock that he might think that way, but he had not shared that. To my knowledge, he had not shared that with anybody or with anybody at the firm. And so when, and you know, Wells's story of what happened in, in those hours between the, the plane striking the building and the collapse really didn't come out till a lot later. I was at Wells' memorial service that was in Nyack, New York. And of course it was heavily attended by the by volunteer firefighters from everywhere. Even at his memorial service, his parents were not aware of the circumstances that later came out of Wells' activity to to try to save others. And it really wasn't until that that one woman told her story of the man in the red bandana that found her and and got her out that that connection between Wells and and his red bandana was made. I'm wondering if he had gone to you for advice, saying, you know, I'm thinking of leaving Sandler for the FDNY. What advice would you have given him? Man, that's a that's a that's a really good question. I've actually thought about that. Nobody's asking me that as directly as you just did. Um, I would have said, you know, and, and have had, we have had others that come and said, look, I'm thinking about doing something else. And I think the advice you give is you, you've got to, you've got to do what you think is right for you. You can't stay in something you think that either somebody is expecting you to do, or you somehow feel obligated or chained it to. You've really got to make a decision as to where your greatest fulfillment is going to be. And if his greatest fulfillment was going to be as a firefighter, full-time firefighter, we would have celebrated that, frankly, if, if that's what he decided to do. Well, he was pretty early in his career on 9-11, but um, another individual that I'd like to talk about is Diana O'Connor, who was a high-ranking woman in an industry historically dominated by men. She was a managing director at Sandler O'Neill. And today, Sandler's part of a firm, Piper Sandler, whose chief executive is a woman. Can you tell us a little bit about Diana and what would she think of the world of finance today and whether it's made changes since 9-11, maybe even because of 9-11, to be more equitable? Yeah, that, she, was, she was a special person. Give you a little bit of background. Our chief financial officer, May Della Pietra, who I hired just after we formed the firm in 88, is the one who found Diana to join her team as she built our finance and compliance group at Sandler O'Neill. And so Diana really joined us very early on in the firm. And she really became the assistant chief financial officer and compliance person, you know, for the firm, which is why she had the title of managing director when she was killed on 9-11. Diana was a smiling, positive influence in the room everywhere she went. And she had a young daughter also 
just just recently before 9-11 happened. But she was also very tough because she was the one who you had to answer to on your expense reports. <laughs> and she was brutal on making sure that you didn't try to slip something in or find your way around the uh, the policies and procedures of the firm. And so everybody had kind of that love-hate is the wrong term. Love-scared relationship with Diana because you knew that when you turned something in, it was going to get scrutinized and you better have the right answer. And so she was, she was a highly respected, significant part of our firm when she was killed on 9-11. Well, as we've talked about, my field of study is broadly business ethics. And so I've worked with and studied a lot of compliance officers. And what you describe, that ability to exercise authority while earning respect is a, a special quality. Yes, it is. You're right. Um, we talked about the fact that we're on different parts of the country today. And of course, even though ground zero of the attacks was the World Trade Center in New York, the attacks were felt around the country. And in fact, victims came from more than 90 countries around the world. But because I'm talking to you from Minneapolis and because I recently was at Gordy Amath Memorial Stadium. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about Gordy, whose name is alphabetically first on the list of 9-11 victims. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. Every time the names are read or you see a scrolling of the names, I still think of, I will get the Super Bowl wrong, but it was in the, uh, it was in the Superdome and you uh, too was the halftime performer on the first Super Bowl that happened after 9-11, and they unleashed that scroll from the, from the ceiling. And of course, Gordiana's name was the very first one on that scroll, which your eyes are just immediately drawn to it. Um, Gordy was not unusual for San O'Neill in that a lot of the growth in people that we had as a firm were references that we had from friends or family about great people that we should think about being part of our firm. And my partner, Jimmy Dunn, knew Gordy's father, and that was really the connection that got Gordy to even think about Sandler O'Neill as a career choice, and that's how he, he got to New York City. He was a uh, person on our fixed income desk and started out as, a, as an analyst, basically, and worked his way into a, in, into a, uh, a direct customer relationship person, and he was, he was great at it. And he was, he was, you could tell he was also from Midwestern stock. He was soft-spoken in many ways, but very, very kind of committed in terms of, of his energies and pursuing what he wanted to be, which was excellent at what he did. Yeah, he's just, he's just, a, he's just a, a great example of almost any name that you could have pulled from the 66 and we had we are the memorial that we have in our office actually has 70 names on it because 66 killed were direct Sandler O'Neill employees or partners but we also had four one was a consultant that was in our office all the time uh, on the compliance side frankly we had a travel group representative that was there to help assist with travel logistics and then we had two visitors that were on the, our floor that were part of a, a software group that our equity trading desk used. Uh, and so we've always, we've always on our memorial listed 70 names 
66 of those were direct Sandler employees. But if you picked any name, it would almost be a, a similar response that I would make to Gordy, Diana, Wells Crowther. They were just, they were just the best people. First of all, I want to thank you for telling us about these three individuals, but I also just want to reiterate that in honoring them, I hope that we honor all 70 of those people on your memorial and indeed every innocent victim of the attacks. Um, you know, it's somber, even 20 years later, to talk about this tragedy, but it's also inspiring in a way. I remember working and living there at the time and thinking that there was no place that I'd rather be than New York City, even after the attacks. There was just so much of the best of humanity that you could see, of course, you know, people who came from all over to help in the rescue and recovery effort at Ground Zero. Um, you told me in a previous conversation about how some of your competitors and clients offered assistance and office space. And uh, even the insurance industry, which is sometimes maligned, was praised for its generosity in paying out claims without questions asked when it wasn't possible to produce all the ordinary evidence needed. And I think one of the inspiring stories that I learned about concerned Sandler O'Neill directly and the decision to continue paying the paychecks of the missing for a time after the attacks. And I think you were directly involved in that decision. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that decision and the kinds of operational decisions that you had to make in the days and weeks after. Yeah, that... Uh, I was part of that decision process. That would give you a little context to it. Post 9-11, there were really three different focuses that we need to have as leadership of the firm. One was the families, directly the families of those 66 people who were killed and the, the support they needed and the uh, both financial support and logistic support they needed to get through all the different things they were going to be confronted with. The second was our employees who were still with us, right? Because they had some different feelings too, as you can imagine. And they had to be considered and support for them had to be considered as well. And then thirdly, and it really was thirdly, was the business itself. How are we going to rebuild the business and the people that we needed to hire, the facilities we needed to build, you know, from the ground up. I mean, if you think about it, we were on the 104th floor of the, of the South Tower, the World Trade Center, and we didn't have a computer that survived. We didn't, we didn't have any paper that survived from that. And, and I don't mean to minimize, I don't mean to make that any, any more, it's very, uh, let me say it this way, that, that is minimal compared to the loss of life. But those are facts that, that we were confronted with as a business. And so Jimmy Dunn, who was the, uh, became our senior managing partner, who was part of the, the managing partner group, which was Jimmy, Chris Quackenbush and Herman Sander, Chris Quackenbush and Herman were killed on 9-11. And Jimmy stepped into a leadership role in a very strong way. And we, we began to divide these. So I, I really took Item one and two, under kind of my personal 
responsibilities, and Jimmy and John Doyle really started tackling the third, which was the business side. And it proved to be, a for us, a, a way that we could each focus where we thought our strengths were best put in, and serve each of those populations the best. But in terms of the, the decision to do what we did with, with the families of those who were killed, we just decided that we would put at risk our financial resources and that if we couldn't rebuild the firm and make it work, then so be it. But we, we wanted to do for our friends' families what we know they would have done for us. And so we, we basically paid out to each family the remaining salaries for the balance of, of 2001 and a one-time payment so that we knew that those families would immediately have financial resources in their hands. And then as we got later in the year, we paid, we paid bonuses in the same way we would have paid bonuses as they were alive so that we knew that those families would have the financial resources to have immediately, frankly. And then all of the other issues, whether it was life insurance, the victim's compensation fund, all of those things, we began to try to help those families all work through. And it was just, a, it, it, you know, to us, it was a very clear decision because either we were going to be successful in continuing the business or we weren't. And if we weren't, we were not going to not try. I, I know that's a double negative, but it wasn't going to be for for lack of energy. And we just felt that that was a, that was a risk that we had to take at that point in time because we think that, that our friends had the tables been reversed and we would have uh, been killed and they were, they were making those decisions. They would have done the same thing. The other thing that we did is we were able to carry medical benefits for these families for the next 10 years, unless, unless they otherwise became available to other medical benefits because of remarriage or, or employment or whatever. So, we just wanted to put in place every safety net that we felt we could do to give these families the opportunity to deal with just as, as you said, the horrendous strategy, strategy of their loved one doing nothing more than go to work that day. Yeah, I just want to reemphasize something about what you just said. You know, you said that there were three areas of focus after the attacks, and although the business might have been third, the business was essential to your ability to focus on the families and the surviving employees. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. And, and I have to tell you that every one of our family members felt exactly the same way. They wanted us to succeed. They, they wanted their loved one to be remembered by a firm that excelled, not by a firm that went away. Well, Fred, we are grateful that the firm did carry on and that the firm is in a strong position today. And I want to thank you so much for honoring the memory of the victims and helping us to learn from their examples about meaningful work that matters. Fred Price, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson is produced by the Melrose and the Toro Company Center for Principled Leadership at the University of St. Thomas.